welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, who's your favorite central banker? Oh, wow. Good question. Right now or throughout history? Uh, throughout history. You know, it's funny. I'm kind of on an Alan Greenspan kick these days. Oh, controversial choice? Yeah. Why? Well, because he seems to have a lot of relevance right now. Like, everybody in the late 90s was predicting inflation was going to happen, uh, but he didn't believe it would happen. In fact, he got into some arguments with Janet Yellen, and the economy had this big boom because he let uh, monetary policy run easy and unemployment dropped further mm. than anyone thought. Then there was this huge bubble, and then there was this huge crash. So, <laughs> you know, you kind of—there are some good aspects of his <laughs> legacy, but— also, maybe some lessons to learn on the negative side, too. What about you? What's your favorite? Oh, God. Um, I'm going to completely sidestep the question because <laughs> I want to get to the point of the question that I just asked you, which you summarized perfectly. And that's the notion that, you know, throughout central bankers' working lives, their professional lives, they kind of fall in and out of favor right. with each other and also with the general public. And it's really interesting to watch that happen. Absolutely. I mean, even like the very recent uh, Fed chairs, for example, I think that's the case. So I think people were uh, very into Bernanke and Yellen for a while. And of course, Bernanke for the actions he took and stemming the financial crisis. But then you look now and you see that inflation is still cool and unemployment has dropped much further than they expected. And you're like, oh, did they like tighten policy too quickly. So subsequent events, whether they're crashes or changing economic conditions, can really um, shade how we saw a banker, a central banker, even just uh, one that was in office a few years ago. Exactly. And do you ever wonder what the central bankers themselves think of what they are doing when they're in office? I always do. Like, you know, does Jerome Powell stay up late at night worrying that he's making a policy mistake? What was Yellen thinking over the past few years? What was Alan Greenspan thinking immediately after the financial crisis? These are all very interesting questions. And yes. today we're going to explore all of those through the prism of one former Fed governor in particular, and that is Paul Volcker. Yeah, uh, I'm really excited about this episode. I think, you know, obviously right before Greenspan, uh, definitely a sort of legendary central banker and whose influence in terms of expectations regarding inflation and Fed independence and making difficult choices uh, in the face of political opposition still uh, looms large today. So uh, I think his life and career hold a lot of lessons for right now. Yep. And we are very lucky at Bloomberg because one of our uh, colleagues, Christine Harper, she's the editor of Bloomberg Markets Magazine, has actually co-authored Paul Volcker's autobiography. It's called Keeping Edit, The Quest for Sound Money and Good Government. It just came out. And so we're going to get to ask her all these things about uh, what Paul Volcker was thinking and how he actually was considering his legacy throughout the years. Can't wait. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. So I have to admit, when I first heard that you were co-authoring a book with Paul Volcker, I had no idea what was going on. Can you please explain how you actually know him and how this project got started? 
Well, I really have to admit it was a pure luck. He has worked in the past with a publisher named Peter Osnos, who founded a publishing imprint called Public Affairs, which is now part of Hachette. And Paul and Peter had some discussions about how Paul, maybe after all these years, might want to write a memoir. And so uh, Peter wanted to make that happen and uh, wanted to find somebody to work with Paul on it. And he thought it was very important it'd be somebody in New York who knows a little bit about finance, but who wouldn't dominate the process and who would have the right kind of uh, chemistry with him and could kind of regularly go and meet with um, Paul and talk about, you know, basically interview him and then try to pull it all together into a book. So I I was very surprised. I, I, knew, I knew Peter a little bit, uh, but I was really not you know, expecting to be asked to do anything like this. And it was a big surprise. And but obviously, I I couldn't think of a book I'd rather work on. Um, What a legend. And I kept thinking throughout the process that no matter what happened, I'd get to spend a lot of time with Paul Volcker. So it was a phenomenal experience. I basically spent the last year and a half kind of almost daily and, you know, or, you know, a few times a week, at least seeing um, this great man, listening to his stories, getting to work with him, learning a great deal about not only the history of the economic uh, story of America and the world, but just about sort of government and integrity and how to live a really good life over 90 years. How does that start? So you interviewed him, but like, did you have like a sort of mapped out idea of the interviews or do you just start and say, all right, Paul, start telling me your story and let's see where this goes? Yeah, I basically took that approach. I had no idea. I first of all, I mean, you know, he's a he's a pretty amazing man. You know, he's six foot seven. He's served under six presidents. You know, he is not easily sort of guided to do anything. He knows what he wants and mm-hmm. he gets it. So there was no point really going there and trying to tell him what we wanted to talk about. Right. I would I would sort of go in and say, hey, let's you know, where do you want to start? And he'd say, OK, let's start at the beginning. We talk. And also, I should say that what happened after we were we did a whole bunch of interviews. I got a lot of transcriptions of these interviews, which proved to be very helpful. But he also then started just writing himself. He hmm. started writing on yellow pads, which is his uh, longtime practice. He doesn't type, and uh, his he has this, he has an assistant who typed them all up, and would email them to me, and I would just go through this and you know edit and say, hey you told me this great story, let's add it in, you didn't put it in, or, you know, why don't we recast it a little bit? So I ended up becoming sort of more of a, an editor and a sort of a coach, mm-hmm. and uh, we would kind of send edits back and forth. And he, he's great. I mean, he's also a natural copy editor. He loves, to, mm-hmm. he loves to go through documents and make kind of tiny, you know, changes. Um, but he's, lovely. He's, he's a lovely collaborator, and I kept worrying that at some point he might become really really tough to deal with because obviously he has to have really um you know strong will and i thought at some point he might vehemently disagree with me on something but actually we we had an amazing experience and um you know i was very lucky um that we got along so well and so peter osnos was was right it was a good combination Uh, so when you when you first met him to discuss this project, Paul, I mean, what did he tell you about what he was trying to do? What were his motivations for, for doing this at the age of, I, I think he's 91 or something like that now? Yeah. So when I first met him, he was 89. He turned 90 late last year, and then he just turned 91. He wanted to 
put down his story in his own words. There have been three biographies written of him, which was a little daunting when mm. I realized that, you know, because... Did you read them all? I did. And I read a book that he wrote with um, a <laughs> former Japanese official named Toyu Goten, who uh, they wrote together about 25 years ago, sort of a series of pieces about their uh, involvement in international monetary system reform, which is really good. It's called Changing Fortunes. So there, a lot of a lot of his stories had been told, um, but it was really about getting to tell it his way and getting to tell things that maybe biographers hadn't thought were so important. You know, he has a chapter in there, for instance, about the importance of accounting reform. He has a, a chapter in there about his involvement with, uh, you know, trying to reform the UN and the and the the World Bank. So those weren't always the sexiest topics for his right. biographers but uh he really cares about these things so he he wanted a, he wanted to write about all the ways in which he was involved not only at the fed but throughout you know his career and and about the importance of public service so what is the overriding theme when when it's accounting reform when it's world bank when it's sort of global monetary reform what is the common thread with which he approaches these big topics. One of the overriding things about him and sort of the, a foundational element of his career was that he grew up during the Depression and World War II with a father who was part of a sort of good government reform movement in the United States. His father was the son of German immigrants, grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, ended up getting a great education, fortunately, and became an engineer, but also ended up going into city management at a time when there's sort of a big move towards ending the corruption of the political sort of Tammany Hall type of politics at the time. And uh, so Paul Volcker Sr. became town manager of this of this New Jersey town, Teaneck, New Jersey, where Paul Volcker Jr. grew up and completely turned it around. I mean, he did an amazing job of making this town that was basically almost bankrupt into a town that was cited by the United States Army in the occupied countries after the war as the model community huh. that they should base their democracies on. It was touted in the Saturday Evening Post as the crime-free town. It, it, it was just a sort of an amazing success. So Paul Volcker Jr. grew up believing there was no higher calling than helping to make your community and your government better. And he went to the, he went to Princeton at a time when the university was run. The president of the university was a professor of public administration. He went to the Litauer Center, which is now the Kennedy School at Harvard, which was all about government. You know, everybody there wanted to go into government. Um, all the economists he was he who were his classmates, they all wanted to go into government. That was kind of seen as the highest calling, and so. Everything he's done in his career has been informed by this idea that there's a really noble um, pursuit in helping make government work better. And uh, he documents in the, in the book all the ways in which he failed. Like he feels very depressed about how he wasn't able to save Bretton Woods. He tried really hard to create a new monetary system that would replace it. And never was able to, and, and kind of writes a, a nice pe part of the ch of the book is where he he sort of explains why he now realizes it was never going to work, but he really wanted it to. He really believed in trying to. He's he's kind of almost the ultimate technocrat, mm -hmm. and his 
he's seen over the last few decades, and he sort of traces it back to Reagan, this sort of belief that government is the problem, that you know government isn't worth investing in, really sort of corrupt our system. And he's he's been fighting against it since he left the Fed, but he hasn't, you know, succeeded. And uh, now I think he and a lot of people would agree we're at a point of almost crisis in this in this respect. So on, on that note, I'm, I'm curious, you're clearly painting a picture of a guy who cares very much about public service. How did he balance that care of public service with independence of the central bank? Because, of course, you know, when he came into the Fed, I think it was 1979, inflation was running incredibly high and Jimmy Carter was complaining a lot about it. So how did he make sure that he sort of paid attention to the needs of the American population while simultaneously maintaining the independence of the central bank? Well, he was brought in, as he describes, at this time of such crisis, it was almost like being a general called in to help fight a war. I mean, there, there was nothing that was more important to helping get the country back on its feet at that point than making sure we did something about inflation. So even though he recognizes that it caused a lot of pain for a lot of people to have interest rates go up so much and monetary policy get so tight. He also will assert, and he does over and over again, that there was no way to help people other than get the inflation rate down. If you didn't get the inflation rate down, all was lost. So he had to do it. He had to do what he did. And a lot of it was psychological. He tells a story in there about after he'd been Fed chairman for uh, you know just a little while, he was called to a meeting at the American Stock Exchange, uh, I think hosted by Arthur Levitt, and there were a whole bunch of businessmen. And he gave his spiel, Volcker gave his spiel about how he was going to, it was going to be a tough fight, and he was going to get inflation down, and he promised that it was going to be good for the economy, and down the road, everything would be fine. And one of the businessmen sitting next to him afterwards piped up and said, that's all very well and good, but I just finished my negotiations with my workforce and I'm giving them 13% raise a year for the next three years. (laughs) And he writes, you know, I wonder how that guy, how it worked out for that guy, you know, because people really didn't believe him. By the time Volcker got in there, people thought it was lost. I mean, Arthur Burns gave a speech in 1979 at the the Per Jacobson lecture, the anguish of central banking. Like it was, basically it was saying that politics were too difficult. It was impossible for central bankers to do anything about this. And at that very moment, Paul Volcker was flying back from Belgrade, where the IMF meeting was, to the, to the Fed to have these emergency meetings to come out with the Saturday night surprise, October 1979, where they announced that they were changing how they targeted, the, they were going to start targeting the money supply instead of the interest rate. And that was a big psychological shift that he sort of engineered to, in a way, inoculate them from criticism that they were raising rates. Because up until then, the Fed always sort of shied away from the, the rate increases that were needed. So inflation was, was ahead of the, of the interest rates. So in order to do something about it and, and sort of prevent the Fed from having to take the heat, in a way, from itself... He just, they they just sort of he he describes it as being lashed to the mast. They were they just said we're we're just we're all about the money supply. Rates are going to do what they are are going to do. It's not it's not what we're doing. We're, we're not, kind of like we're not responsible for rates, and uh, that was kind of a great psychological 
instinct he had. I'm curious about the lessons for today, because if you hear central bankers now, they talk a lot about inflation and the importance of guarding against any sort of uplift in inflation or inflation expectations. They talk about their sort of hard-won credibility of the Federal Reserve, which I think definitely starts with Volcker. On the other hand, unemployment has been extremely high up until very recently, and arguably it's still elevated when you look at various measures of inflation. And so to sort of push back against Volcker's legacy a little bit, I'm wondering what you think of the argument that central bankers have become so focused on inflation that in the last decade, they sort of threw their hands up about unemployment, the other half of their mandate, and said, you know, just in the same way that Arthur Burns may have said, look, there's nothing, you know, central banks, we can't do anything about inflation anymore because of politics. Whether in the post-crisis period, everyone was like, oh, a central bankers like, oh, unemployment is other people's problem, or it's fiscal policymakers, or it's the problem of a skills gap, and sort of ignoring the fact that maybe there was something they could have done about that. Well, I'm not an economist, so I'm not sure. a good good uh, good person to comment on that. I know what he would say, yeah. which is that he feels ultimately the the number one almost moral requirement of the central bank is to make sure that the value of money isn't er- isn't eroded, and that over history, you know, that's been the easiest way for governments to kind of try to, you know appease the masses is to just, you know, cut the value of the currency. And uh, and so he strongly objects to, I mean, he, there, he has a section in there about how, and this was uh, excerpted on Bloomberg um, Opinion a few weeks ago, about the, what he considers the folly of the targeting of the 2%, the 2% inflation rate. I mean, he, it drives him absolutely insane to see people as they were this summer, sort of agonizing over you know, that we have inflation of only 1.7%. And it, how do we get it to 2%? And he, he's like, first of all, none of these measures are so precise. Right. It's, it's, it's absurdity to try to act as though you can do that with such precision. Second of all, once you decide that 2% is your target, you're essentially agreeing to double prices every generation. And you're also going to fall into a slippery slope of, oh, what if 2% doesn't get us the employment we want? Then maybe let's just raise it to 3%. It just makes it too easy. He believes in a more principle-based idea of sort of instead of targeting a number, just targeting, you know, when business and consumer decisions are not affected by inflation. Okay, here's what I really want to know. In the course of all your meetings with uh, Volcker, did he ever tell you stuff that he didn't want put into the book? Are there things that he would rather sort of keep out of his own story? I'm not asking for specifics. I'm just curious if there are certain controversial things that he wouldn't go into. He told me some stories that when I when I reminded him of them, he said, oh, let's not let's not bother with that one. Yes. I mean, in part because he didn't want the book to be so long. He's sort of a funny, uh, you know, very self-deprecating. And he doesn't he didn't want a book that was, you know, this gigantic tome. He didn't want something that sounded really pompous in terms of the title or anything. He, you know, wanted to keep it pretty short and to the to the point. And uh, and yeah, there were some stories that are amusing. He loves, I mean, one of the things people don't know about him if they haven't spent time with him is that, I certainly didn't know this, is that he's incredibly funny. 
he loves to tell stories and he's really, really funny. And he's very wry and, uh, you know, kind of he loves gossiping. I'm curious, thinking about it, the book coming out now. And obviously we live in an interesting time for central bankers. But you sort of said this earlier. The bigger picture is that we live in a very interesting time for governance. And I'm curious how much the very current government setup in the U.S., whether it's the attacks on the Federal Reserve's independence from President Trump or just the sort of unconventional nature of the Trump presidency or the various things we've seen in Congress in recent years, whether it's the debt ceiling, things like that, of sort of naked attempts to get political advantage by sort of weakening governance in this country, how much that was on his mind with the book coming out right now? Well, I think it's, you know, it's definitely on his mind. He's very disturbed about how, you know, Washington is being uh, managed these days. And as he says, sort of throughout the book, this lack of trust in government, which is really corrosive to a democracy, is sort of rooted in the fact that people have, over time, lost the faith that government can do what they expect it to do. And in in part, it's because the government has just gotten responsible for more and more. First of all, the population has gotten much bigger. There's mm-hmm. many more things we expect government for to do for us than when he was growing up. But also just this a willingness to invest in government has really been eroded over time back to the sort of Reagan sort of like, oh, we got to cut the government. So this idea that like government's the problem, starve the government and then right. complain that government is no good. So let's starve the government some more. It's sort of been going on for a long time. And, you know, the consequences are obvious. His he has this thing called Volcker Alliance, which is all about trying to train people for government, make government run more efficiently. And he really believes passionately in just making sure people in the government know how to do their jobs well. I mean, so much of government nowadays is outsourcing. Mm. And if you aren't trained to deal with, you know, managing loads of people externally who are handling things for you, if you're not good at, uh, at, good at all that, if everybody who gets that kind of training goes into business and not into government, right. then, you know, you, you, you're going to end up with a pretty bad system. So this is sort of his pa- his passion. And then in terms of the attacks on things like the Fed, obviously, you know, that disturbs him. But, you know, he's got this great sense of history. I mean, he's seen it. You know, he right. grew up when the Treasury was still controlling the Fed. You know, he remembers the, the, the great accord when Eccles was able to separate and make the Fed really uh, really separate from the Treasury after the war. And uh, he wrote his thesis when he was at Princeton on Federal Reserve and the need for it to be independent. So, you know, he, this is something he's cared about his whole life, but he also knows that like, sort of almost every president he's seen operate has in some way tried to, you know, attack the Federal Reserve. And, and so... Um, Keeping at it is sort of the title because this is this is not a new war- battle we're fighting. It's it kind of goes on and on throughout history and will continue. And and you need, I guess, people like Paul Volcker to sort of stand on the right side of things. Christine Harper, editor of Bloomberg Markets Magazine and the author, co-author, I should say, of Keeping at It: The Quest for Sound Money and Good Government. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Great podcast you guys have. Thank So 
Joe, I have to admit, I'm a little bit jealous after listening to that conversation because I just imagine, you know, Christine is sort of hanging out at Paul Volcker's house and they're drinking wine and he's telling her all these really interesting stories about back when the financial system was sort of on the brink. I bet that would be a, a really great experience to have. Now I kind of want to do that. I know. I want to do that, like, just take <laughs> take a year and find some really fascinating historical figure and just talk to them forever and get their entire story. I have to say, it sounds pretty great. Yeah. And of course, the interesting thing, which we alluded to in the intro, is the way that central bankers' own reputation and legacy sort of evolves along with, I guess, the economy, really. There are plenty of people who were sort of vilified uh, by events that they arguably helped cause. And then there are other people that it seems to have worked out for. And of course, they're now celebrated as heroes. Yeah. And I think another really important aspect of uh, Volcker's legacy is beyond the specific monetary policy decisions that he made during the era of double digit inflation is this idea that he's sort of bigger than a just a central banker and thinking about him uh, working for the Obama administration during the drafting of the Dodd-Frank regulatory reform. And of course, the famous like Volcker rule. It's obvious, and of course this was what we were talking about, but it's obvious that his reputation is as someone who could just sort of be trusted as someone of a person of integrity so that sort of no matter what specifically the issue is, his uh, judgment is seen as a wise counsel, someone who can be um, trusted to make a sort of bring a big picture, good government perspective to whatever the problem is. Right. And on that note, I have one thing to say, which yes. is Paul Volcker for the Odd Lots accounting series. Yeah. Oh, I had that same thought. Like, maybe we should <laughs> do just right. We have to we still have to revisit our accounting series. I don't know when we'll get to that, but we should do one on uh, Volcker's proposed reforms. I, I need to we need yeah. to read that book that he co-wrote with the uh, Japanese economist. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, this has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow Christine Harper on Twitter at CR underscore Harper. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Topher Forges at Forges T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. 